0: Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, which is well and truly back after a three-month absence. To open this spring season of podcasts about seriously interesting books, The Hedgehog and the Fox explore the role of pigs and pork in the shaping of American history in the company of historian Joseph Anderson. Swine,
1: like so many species, are very opportunistic and they are able to exploit a niche. That was one of the things that made them such a great source of calories for thousands of years, when you put them in an estuary or you put them in hill country, you put them in a forest or savanna, they will find a way. They are incredibly tough. They're so terribly fast. And they're able to uh, exploit lots of different ecosystems. It makes them great colonizers.
0: In his book, Capitalist Pigs, Joe reproduces a humorous map of the United States from 1876, entitled A Porciniograph, in which the outline of the entire country has been lightly tweaked to take on the appearance of a pig. Snout to the east, tail to the west. Florida, a fore-trotter. Baja, California, co-opted as a rear one. The legend on the map listed pork dishes associated with each region, ham sandwiches in California, salt pork in Arkansas, scrapple in Pennsylvania, pickled trotters, appropriately enough, in Florida. The message, Joe writes, was simple. Swine and pork were omnipresent from coast to coast. How pork came to be the meat that built the nation is the theme of Joe's book, and also of our conversation. He writes... Bacon was the most commonly consumed meat on the Oregon and California trails. Immigrant Helen Carpenter complained about the monotony of overland trail food. About the only change we have from bread and bacon is to bacon and bread. Authors of guidebooks for overland immigrants advised packing 25 to 75 pounds of bacon per person for the 110-day trek which meant as much as over half a pound per day. Pork fueled the gold rushes, the logging frontier, military posts, and the canal and railroad boom across the continent. It also fed the enslaved people of the American South, their calorie intake carefully calculated to maximise productivity without enabling revolt. When I spoke to him on the phone, I began by asking Joe how his interest in hogs and history had begun.
1: When I wrote my first book, I kept encountering a lot of fascinating information about pigs that I knew I couldn't use in the book. I knew there wasn't a place for it. It was just too narrow of a project for that. So I just kept cashing it away and thinking about what that could be someday. And uh, because I do a lot of teaching and have broad interests in in history, I kept coming across little tidbits and nuggets of provoking comments. One that really sticks with me was William Byrd, colonial Virginia, was disparaging people from North Carolina about how much pork they ate and was describing the, the fact that they'd become more beast like and resemble the pig. You get little tidbits like that that are just so provoking. And when I finished that first book, I thought, I have no idea what the story is with pigs, but I think there's something interesting there. There are personal origins too for this. When I was a kid and visited my grandparents' farm in Iowa back in the 1970s, at night you could hear the hogs in the hog lot going into their self-feeders that have these little galvanized lids so they can lift up the lid with their snout, get in, eat, and then back out and you hear this clanking and that sense memory was really powerful too so I'd had lots of encounters with pigs over the years and just amazed at how smart how tenacious they are how fast they are so many qualities that uh, I just thought there, there has to be something there
0: and were you surprised that, that when you began began to look for pigs Systematically, just how many you found. I mean, it seems that they, you know, they, they find their way into all sorts of corners of the historical record. Be that diaries or letters or journals or reports or newspaper articles. It seems it seems that every every corner you turn, you you, you risk stumbling upon a pig.
1: That's quite right, and literally stumbling upon a pig for the travelers' <laughs> accounts. Uh, mm. They were so much fun to read. Travelers from around the world ended up in the United States because of the great experiment nature of, uh, of a republic. People were curious about it. And you read these accounts and people are literally stumbling across pigs in the street. Charles Dickens said, uh, take care of the pigs. Uh, and of course, he was not <laughs> admonishing people to <laughs> provide appropriate Welfare. food and water, but take care of the pigs, mind the gap, as it were.
0: Yes. So, I mean, there's something rather paradoxical, isn't there, about the status of the pig? Because as, as you've already alluded to, there's quite a lot of disparagement of both pigs and pig eaters in the historical record. And yet, you know, your book makes a, a strong case for seeing the pig as the animal on whose back the United States was built, the meat that built the nation. So you've got that sort of inbuilt tension really there from the start, haven't you?
1: There is tension there. and that. That was one of the things that emerged uh, as I started to look at diet and dietary preferences. I was really struck by the ways in which pork occupied a a place on what I call the meat hierarchy, for lack of a better term, in which there is quite a bit of prejudice that comes from Europe about uh, swine flesh and the association of swine with, uh, with those swinish traits in people, and the importance of pork for working people. It struck me how important beef was as a status meat, and mutton too, and yet all the elites, uh, the best records we have, the elites ate very broadly across the livestock spectrum. As you push down and get into the lower, lower rungs of that ladder, people have less choice. And pork became seen as an ideal food for working people, certainly in the, in the Middle Ages, the early modern period, uh, because it provided the, the calories and the fuel that people needed. And so when Europeans come to North America, they really do bring that prejudice about pork as being working people's food. And we, of course, know that Europe is filled with working people. North America is filled with working people. The elites, the elites have the choice. But in North America, some of those working people start to have a few more options in terms of game, fish, and they really try and challenge that. But there are really powerful forces that keep pork associated with working people. And the exhibit A on that is slavery, race-based slavery.
0: I'm sure we'll come back to the question of slavery. But when the European settlers first begin to make an impact in North America, what kind of niche is the pig occupying in, in their lives?
1: Swine, like so many species, are very opportunistic and they are able to exploit a niche. That was one of the things that made them such a great source of calories for thousands of years. When you put them in an estuary, or you put them in hill country, you put them in a forest or savanna, they will find a way. They are incredibly tough. They're so terribly fast, and they're able to uh, exploit lots of different ecosystems. It makes them great colonizers. So for the Europeans, they really had a leg up because they had a species that could take care of itself. And Really emerged as a as an important threat to indigenous people on the continent, and so there's that that important cultural space as a colonizer. There are important ecological spaces, those niches, as well as the cultural space for dietary dietary preference and dietary need.
0: So, if people are imagining those early settlers as having a pen with a few pigs in it. It wasn't at all like that, was it? And, and that's why they came into conflict with indigenous peoples.
1: That's quite right. It was relatively easy. And I, I say relatively. It, the settlers uh, certainly earned their supper, let's say this, uh, from a, a labor perspective. But they could put swine on an island or they could let them run in the forest. And with some strategic interventions along the way, laying out some supply of food, could keep drawing the pigs back for a predictable predictable supper every now and again. It was a way of uh, utilizing space that, it, in a, a very rough sense, kind of resembled what Native people had been doing on the continent, which is relying on hunting for their protein, uh, a lot of their protein, not all of it. And the settlers did something very similar. They ended up putting these animals out there and when they needed them, either rounding them up or hunting them. So you're quite right. The pen was, uh, was a very, very limited tool, uh, frequently happening around the winter when uh, they wanted to bring those animals back home and slaughter them, butcher and salt and preserve them for, for the winter and spring season when they were living off the fruits of their summer labor.
0: So at, th- at that stage, it wasn't, you know, selective breeding and things like that. It was a sort of semi-feral creature almost, or is that is that pushing it too far to characterize it in those terms?
1: I don't think it's putting it too far for many, many areas of the continent. Remember that those animals that are brought over are not the result of improved breeding. We'll really see a, a strong effort on that in the 18th century, certainly in England, emerges as a leader in selective breeding to standards, creating what what we recognize today as a breed. So these animals were catch-as-catch-can, and they were rewarded by their their ability to survive. So this is a case where these animals that come in, they're relatively nondescript, they're heavily bristled, they are a much leaner animal than uh, some of the Great artistic images that come out of the 18th and 19th century of these hogs that are just, they look like uh, just potatoes uh, with little (laughs) tiny legs on them. These animals are wiry and lean. And they're absolutely fantastic for aiding in the settlement of the continent.
0: So, I mean, if if someone... Imagines them. They should probably imagine something looking a bit more like a a wild boar today than than a than a pig that's been raised in an intensive farming operation.
1: That's right. We now we all know nothing holds still today. Our our swine are quite lean, and that's a result of our relentless obsession. If there's any other kind of obsession with fat, so we have created animals that today look quite lean. But for a long time, that fat was, was very, very important. That was the source of a lot of your cooking oil. Fat was valuable to sell for lubricating oil in machines, in industry. There were many markets for the fat, fat for illumination. So making into uh, lard oil lamps or candles. One of our big multinationals today, Procter & Gamble, one of those partners was a Chandler. The other was a soap maker, and they ended up centering their early production in the exact ground zero for American hog production in the early 19th century, which was Cincinnati, Ohio. So there are lots and lots of reasons for people to collect and store that fat, but those first animals didn't have the opportunity to put on that kind of weight because they were living with the seasonal rhythms of the forest. So when the, when the acorns, when the nuts are falling, those are good times for those pigs, but uh, they'll have a tougher time at other seasons. But again, that ability for them to store fat is one of the things that made them so desirable. And their ability to take care of themselves, the, they require a little less care than cattle and sheep. They are less vulnerable to some of those apex predators that's one of the reasons why it was so easy in a scarce labor environment for people to raise those hogs and make a lot of money on those on those hogs.
0: Your story is one of increasing intensification and systemization and focusing on productivity. And I wondered, when would you say that that process really begins to to get underway in the, in the history of the American pig industry?
1: That is a highly contested issue. I tend to locate the origins of that in the late 1800s. And I do so because the language around production changes. You start to see references to animals, and especially pigs, as a factory, a factory for converting cheap corn into expensive flesh. That language is mechanistic, and it's, it's quite striking, the importance of system and rationalization that comes around in the late 19th century. Typically, a lot of people have located this process in the 20th, especially the mid-20th century. That is certainly true. That's a, that's a moment of great intensification, but If there is ever an origins moment, I think it comes with that uh, language around reconceptualizing animals as machines. You can see that in the farm press. There's just this wonderful fluorescence of agricultural periodicals, and they are talking about everything. There's testimony from farmers. The land-grant universities uh, have all sorts of professionals dedicated to studying conversion ratios for feed grain to flesh, all sorts of experiments about what, what the optimal environment is. You know, a lot of this is utter nonsense, but there's a lot of real, real things that are happening there. And you can kind of see science and technology living and breathing in these agricultural periodicals when they look at how do we handle a disease threat? How do we handle the best ration for this particular region? What do we need to do to make sure that uh, these animals don't become sick when we put them together? To me, that's, that's, a, that's an important turning point for us.
0: And as you say, in those periodicals, you see those problems arising in real time and you see the debates and you see the, the conjectures and the, the solutions that were tried and perhaps abandoned before, before a particular path was taken.
1: It is amazing. I, I think in particular of, of health and as the concentration and intensification was underway. It was an ideal disease environment for many, many different swine plagues, but one of the most notorious ones became known as hog cholera. And this was a absolutely devastating disease in the 1850s. And you see farmers and physicians grappling with that. And, and people swear by their cures, They'll take corn cobs and char them and grind them up and feed them to their hogs and will swear that after they fed this in accompaniment with castor oil or something, that those animals will be cured or will be immune to the infection. And, uh, you know, in the age before Louis Pasteur, lots of theories are out there about uh, the ways in which disease or diseases are transmitted and acquired and you see this desperate sense of a search for a cure with hog cholera and again the the certainty with which farmers and experts promote their cures even if they're not trying to make a buck off it they believe they have found something that will advance the cause of civilization and they want to share it and they've written an article or an essay or a letter to the editor of one of these periodicals, it's easy to get lost in that. And it's a ton of fun to see that the dynamism of that particular cultural moment. I've, those are times when you think maybe the book will never actually be published because I'm so, uh, so mired in the sources. But, but uh, I guess that's a good thing, too.
0: Yes, as long as you. Yes, as long as you. As long as you come <laughs> back eventually, you can report back. Because <laughs> as right. you say, well, yeah, eventually. Sort of
1: yeah, I was going to say, eventually, you'll need a bagel or uh, or a muffin or something like that, so you have to leave <laughs> uh, leave that behind.
0: One really important sort of sub theme of the book, it seemed to me, was the importance of pork in wartime. I mean, there's a, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole strand of, you know, important world events that were sort of subtended by pork production, if I can put it slightly facetiously, which I probably shouldn't.
1: You, you absolutely can. Uh, <laughs> you think about the 17th and the 18th and the 19th century and the ascendancy of the British Empire. And you think about the important links of those North American colonies in that global trading system. One of the debates that's animated pork over the year, pork stories in the United States over the years is what was the role of pork in the diet? And it was terribly important, as I've indicated. But really one of the most important markets for American pork was the British Empire. And so if you step back and you look at the globe, And you think about all the places where the Royal Navy went, all of those ports and all of those naval engagements with so many, so many powers, they're eating a lot of American pork and it's easy for them to pick it up. It's easy for them to pick it up in American ports and uh, ports in the Caribbean. You know, it's, it's not only an American story, it's a global story. I didn't develop that as much in the book. But when we look at the records of as, as fragmentary as they are of colonial era farmers, they're producing more pork than they can consume locally on their farm, and in some cases more than the local community can consume. And so some of that obviously goes into the coastwise trade. It's going to Charleston, South Carolina, and it's going to Boston and New York, but an awful lot of it is going on those ships around the world to feed the British Army and the Royal Navy. That's a part of the war story that I really didn't play up, but is certainly important.
0: And is the configuration between corn and pork and the railroads, is that, is, is that sort of triangular effect a really important one? Is that sort of sine qua non of the, the dominance of pork in in particular periods in American history?
1: It is very important. The ubiquity of Corn in the United States is such that uh, in a lot of places and a lot of different times, the market value of a bushel of corn is relatively low. Now, obviously, with any commodity, there are fluctuations and there, there are times when it's absolutely fantastic to have a bin full of corn or to be ready to sell. But in many places, the value of that is relatively low. And so it really doesn't pay to either haul it overland uh, on a horse and cart or in feed bag or bags over a horse's back or to ship it by rail. And so there's a strong incentive for many, many American farmers to feed that corn locally. And it was human food. We don't think about it as much today, but throughout the 19th century, a lot of Americans uh, had a lot more corn in their diet We have it today as corn syrup, but they had it in terms of corn bread, corn fritters, corn cakes, fried corn cakes on your on your table. So it's consumed by people and animals locally. And it's a way to take that cheap commodity and make something more valuable. And so the railroads are important in that, but they're less important for shipping corn and they're more important for shipping the live market hog or the carcass. Or barreled pork, whatever it may be. So there is an important relationship there, and a lot of it has to do with just the fact that every region of the United States produces a lot of corn. Some more than others. The South is associated, longstanding association with corn, and the West. Uh, and by West, we're talking about one of the early Wests, the Ohio Frontier and the Kentucky Frontier, and Tennessee. So there's the fact that so many farms, corn was a relatively easy crop to raise uh, in terms of skill, unlike some of the commodity crops like tobacco. So anyone, a child can raise corn, and children were active participants in making that corn
0: crop. I mean, talking of transportation, before we began, I was mentioning I'd recently read a book called City of Beasts, which was looking at George and London. And drovers would bring cattle and sheep into the city. But one of the, th- one of the things that I remember reading in that book was that pigs were generally regarded as too difficult to drive. And so, <laughs> my eyebrows uh, raised when I, when I saw in your book that, that hog drives, sometimes lasting for two or three weeks, were really quite common in 19th century America.
1: They were quite common. And it's, it's one of those things that if you had the time machine, and you could go back and see something in history, I mean, people might choose to sit down with, you know, <laughs> Churchill and Stalin and FDR. Uh, but I would love to see one of these significant hog drives of the, of the 19th century, of the 18th century, because they were a true spectacle. And they did end up in the cities. Cincinnati is a great one. The, and there are escapees. The testimony of those travelers is testimony not only to the organized hog drives that are going to the cities, but the fact that there are escapees and hogs are loose in those cities because they are more difficult to govern than cattle and sheep. So you have these strays combined with the fact that there might be many, many people in a given city at any moment who are keeping swine in the heart of the city. They may have a pen for them, they may not, but uh, those that are penned, if we know anything about hogs, is that they are really good at escaping. So they're everywhere. So it doesn't surprise me that uh, there were prohibitions in, uh, in Georgian, Georgian London about keeping them out because we know from the testimony in North America that it was a mess.
0: And those urban pigs that you've referred to they weren't just, I mean, obviously they were, they were fulfilling a, a need for the people who were rearing them, but they weren't just a, a nuisance for the wider population because they were fulfilling a sort of ecological role. They were acting as as recycling plants, as waste disposal units, weren't they, as well as potential foodstuffs?
1: They were service animals uh, for the city. So in a place that uh, relies on fisheries, it was very easy to convert the fish guts and all of the waste. Uh, yes, you could simply push it into the sea, but you could also feed it to the pigs and they would clean it up. Of course, pigs make their own mess, but they're not unique that way. Everyone is making a mess in the city. There, There's waste, waste all over. And it's one of the great, great campaigns of the mid to late 19th century to clean up the cities, and they're doing a lot of cleaning of of animal and human waste. So they're performing a service function, taking something that's difficult to deal with and extremely unpleasant, like slaughterhouse waste. And they're making into something that is also unpleasant. They're, you know, they're depositing their own feces, but you're getting something valuable along the way. And it is much, much easier to deal with animal feces than it is slaughterhouse waste. So they are valued in the city by many people. They're inextricably tied with the city for a long time in America, but we have some pretty powerful forces that are lining up in the mid to late 19th century about what a respectable city is. We see the growth of an increasingly influential middle class, certainly a, a minority, but a very vocal vocal and powerful minority that want these animals out not only for controlling the animals but to control the people who are associated with those animals and that's often the working class.
0: Now your book is not just interested in the economics and the the politics you're also you know you've also got lots of interesting things to say about how the pig and pork are embedded culturally in the history of the United States. And I thought one particularly interesting section was where you write about the origins and the cultural significance of soul food by the, by the 20th century and looking at the sort of sometimes ambivalent relationship that African-Americans had with a particular diet which originated in the South during the time of, of slavery. Can you say a little bit about some of the sort of cultural forces you see at, at work in, in, in that case?
1: That was absolutely fascinating to explore and to find all sorts of source material popping up in unexpected places around stories that I'd read a lot about and knew a lot about, including the civil rights movement and the black power movement, but I hadn't paid much attention to food. That's a great example. So in Southern slavery and that uh, important incarnation of it, because it existed in the North too, uh, for, for much of American history, but certainly in the, the plantation south on those large estates where there were many, many enslaved people, the food supply was heavily regulated. And there's a lot of discourse around what's the appropriate amount of food for an enslaved person. And generally, they settle around on the, about three quarters of a pound per week. And that's, by our standards, not a lot of meat. And for people who are doing incredible physical work, as as was often said in those days, from can see to can't, that's not a lot of protein to maintain a body. So slavery had this reason to it, if you can call the inhumanity reasonable, but a reason and a rationale to get people enough calories to do the job and enough protein to maintain their bodies, but not so much that they would run away or fight back. Now, we know that people ran away and fought back. So when emancipation finally comes after the, the Civil War and the ratification of the 13th Amendment and the arrival of the United States Army in many areas of the South, A lot of people wanted something a little different and wanted something more. And very, very quickly, landowners in the South, predominantly white and predominantly wealthy, but not always, reinstituted uh, a form of a new plantation agriculture. And it was also associated with pork because pork was low cost, because it provided so many calories, so much important fat, that the human body needs, they found it to be a very convenient food source. And as a result, when many African-Americans are fighting back over the years and they achieve some successes, albeit limited, there's a desire on the part of many people to let that go. And there's a, on the other end of the spectrum, there's a celebration of that. So, for example, uh, Nation of Islam, and of course the Islamic prohibition on meat, on pork, consumption is is important there, and that gains a lot of traction in the 1950s and 60s. And pork is seen as, as slave food. And so there's a, not only a religious prescription against it, but there's also an important, uh, important social cultural one that comes out of that American experience with slavery. But there, are, as you indicate, There are also a lot of other people who say, this is me. This is the food that made my people. And during World War II, when many, many African-Americans are heading into the armed forces, are heading into industrial cities, growing industrial cities, North and South, they're leaving behind that rural culture. Uh, Many people keep that rural culture and it becomes known in the North as soul food. So... It's a fascinating celebration of the fact that enslaved people ate all the way across that hog carcass, but often low on the hog, which included the innards, all those things that uh, many people kind of blanch at today, but the intestines, the chitlings, uh, or chitlins as they're known locally, all those things play an important role. Hog maws, one of the things that I found in... Uh, the New Deal photographs of the 1930s and 40s was a great image of Detroit and a little grocery, a little meat market in an African American part of Detroit. And they're selling hog lungs. They're selling the jaws. They're selling all of the kind of the, the parts of the hog that many middle class Americans in that growing, growing middle class were not interested in eating but still have a valuable valuable cultural and dietary, dietary function for a lot of people. And, and so that's fascinating to me. Uh, and I hope I hoped to bring that out in the book, to talk a little bit about the way food works in so many different ways yeah. beyond calories and, and protein.
0: In your subtitle, your subtitle book, Pigs, Pork and Power in America, and I wondered, how do you see the landscape of power today as far as as far as pig rearing is concerned, because one of the facts I took away from the book is that almost two-thirds of the pork reared in the States today is produced by just four huge companies.
1: When you talk about pigs and pork in the context of power, they, the, the power today is that those producers who raise that pork have a tremendous amount of power not only over what we eat, but also the land itself. And when we talk about our ecological crises that we confront today in places where pork production is especially intensive, there have been some real negative consequences. So on one hand, Americans really like to eat pork. We love our bacon. <laughs> we, we love our pork loin. We love all sorts of things that come off the hog carcass, And we love the fact that it's inexpensive meat in North America generally has been relatively inexpensive for a long time. It's a case where that's been part of the American ethic here that we have relatively cheap meat and we like it. And so that, that industry has had the power to deliver cheap meat. That industry has also had the power to shape landscapes and labor and At a time when we've had significant rural depopulation, particularly from the farm, not just rural areas, because some rural areas are are doing okay, but as we've seen less farm labor, we've seen lots of migrant farm labor brought in to do that work. And that labor has been relatively powerless in the context of American agricultural history. So it's a case where uh, the industry's power again, it's it's delivered what it promised, but it's also delivered far more than was promised. And we tend to minimize a lot of those stories when we like to talk about cheap food.
0: I was talking to Joseph Anderson about his book, Capitalist Pigs, which one review called A Meaty, Accessible and Clear-Eyed Agricultural History. It's available in a large format paperback edition from West Virginia University Press. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme, so until then, thank you very much for listening, goodbye.